Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and for this episode, I wanted to talk turkey, pun intended for our American listeners who celebrated Thanksgiving this past week, about what investors should be doing in this very erratic year. Depending on the region, the stocks are down 10 to 25% year to date, and it has definitely not been in a straight line. And with aggressive rate hikes around the world, bonds are also down mid-teens, significantly worse, of course, for long bonds. And if stocks and bonds end this year in the red, it'll only be the fourth time since 1929 that this has happened. So my question to answer today is, in a market where there's seemingly no place to hide, what should investors be focused on? So to tackle this, I'm joined by George Cipollone. George co-manages the balanced income strategy at Penn Mutual Asset Management, which includes analysis and investment in dividend-paying common stocks and investment-grade and high-yield bonds. He's also a CFA charter holder. So welcome, George. Thanks for having me, Michael. So I want to start today, George, by talking about the role of liquidity in financial markets. We all know, of course, that stocks surge when the Fed is more dovish than expected or sell off when it surprises on the hawkish side. And one extreme example, you have Stanley Druckenmiller, who says that effectively, earnings don't really even matter. It's liquidity that moves markets. So what do you think? How important is liquidity to stock valuations and their subsequent returns? It's funny only because that quote really resonated with me, I think, a few years ago. And obviously, Stanley Druckenmiller is is a brilliant investor. And when he said it, especially as a charter holder, I almost got offended at first because we spend so much time and a lot of our effort is done on the bottom up, examining companies, analyzing businesses, looking at income statements and balance sheets and free cash flow statements. That when I first heard that quote again, it inflamed me a little bit. I'm like, wow, that's that's you know that's not true. <laughs> but what we have seen over the past couple of decades, I think, absolutely shows that that liquidity is absolutely an important component. And I'll describe how we look at it. We view it as one of three components that actually drives securities. But it is incredibly important, and it's been an, a monumental period from a historical standpoint. So. If you think about what's happened in terms of liquidity over the past few years, especially since COVID, if you just look at a chart of M2, money supply growth, if you just look at a chart of central bank balance sheets that have absolutely surged, and then you see the impact, there is an absolute direct correlation between what we saw in M2 growth and what we saw in central bank balance sheets and what we've seen in valuations. And so I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. So Obviously, we know the balance sheets are up a ton. Central bank balance sheets were, depending on which one you look at, were up about 70% across the board. The Fed balance sheet was up about 157% from $3.5 trillion to $9 trillion at peak. And M2 grew. It spiked up over 25% over COVID. And so pre-COVID, the NASDAQ price-to-sales ratio was 2.7 times. It peaked in February of 2021 at 4.6 times. And now it's back down to 2.7 times as M2 has gone down and as Fed Fed balance sheet is is tightening as we are going through QT now versus QE. S&P, same thing. Price to sales pre-COVID was two times after the surge in in, um, money supply and liquidity went up to 3.14 times, which is over a 50% increase, obviously. And then now it's back down to 2.25 times. So those are some pretty specific examples of how liquidity certainly impacts valuations. Now, I will say, 
again, Mike, it's one of the components that we look at when we analyze companies, we are looking at three levers. One is valuation. Number two is sales growth. Number two is margin. So the only thing I would add to or edit in terms of the Druckenmiller statement from a bottom up stock and bond picker standpoint, I think he's right, generally speaking, from a broad, bigger picture macro markets level. Absolutely. I do think from an individual stock and bond picker standpoint, if you combine not only the liquidity function in valuation, but also a really good understanding of balance sheets and income statements and cash flow statements, then, then you can absolutely discern a little bit more and can add a lot of value uh, using the three lever methodology that we like to use. So I had a couple questions on that. So, so given that, are there are there certain types of companies that tend to benefit more from fiscal policy or uh, monetary policy rather get hurt more by the tightening? And the second part of that question is, you know, given the difficulty of accurately predicting these moves, how can investors apply the insight that liquidity is such a huge driver of returns? Because obviously you're not going to pick the top or bottom on these things, but I imagine it has something to do with, you know, just being aware of where we are in the cycle is on the mark. I think you're right, Michael. And so I think, again, we aren't going to nail every single Fed meeting correctly in terms of, and honestly, it really doesn't matter. So I think the perspective is important, long-term versus short-term. And so again, if you're looking, trying to trade meeting to meeting, I think that's problematic. I don't think anybody can really do that. Nobody can time the market as, as we hear over and over again. And so whether the Fed raises by 75 or 50 or 25, to me is less important versus the broad general direction of the tightening or the easing. And over time, yes, you can add a lot of value doing that. To your point, are there specific companies that benefited from it and, and are hurt by it? 100%. So again, tying in that edited Drug Miller, you know, kind of quote, if you do add in the earnings perspective, I do think one of the things that we saw, obviously, were that growth companies and nonprofit tech companies, non-profitable tech companies for sure, were the most impacted on the way up and on the way down. And so why is that? Well, it's because they didn't have a solid foundation of earnings to buffet the, the decline that we've seen. And so that's why, quite frankly, as a stock and bond picker, I think we're having a good time of it now because we focus so much on the underlying earnings. Again, that's your foundation. So to your, going back to your point, yes, the, the non-profitable tech, which surged and, you know, a lot of other funds, I won't name names, but a lot of other of those funds that focus on those growth companies did amazingly well for a short period of time. And then you saw them fizzle out just like they did during the tech bubble. And one of the main reasons why is because their fundamental, their primary driver of performance was that valuation, which was driven by M2, which was driven by Fed liquidity and, and central bank balance sheets. So... Yes, absolutely. I think it's important to know that because once that liquidity goes out, once the once the tide goes out, you you see what you really have there. And if you have operating losses and if you have just adjusted earnings based off of um, you know, stock-based comp, which really, you know, again, it's 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 not, you know, good fundamental earnings, but if you have good fundamental growth, you have good fundamental operating margins and a good balance sheet you will have some value. That's the value that we seek. And that's the value that ultimately is left there. To, to Buffett's point, you see, once the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. Exactly. Exactly. And there are a lot of, <laughs> the next conversation might be, well, who's swimming naked? Well, there are a lot of 
companies that ha- that have been you know swimming naked. A lot of investors that were invested in a way that they need to go get some swim trunks pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, George, as I mentioned off the top, twenty twenty two has challenged investors in both stocks and bonds, as bonds have not provided that historical sort of offset that they usually do. So, I'm curious about two things. What do you think investors are overlooking in this current environment? And honestly, where can where can they hide? So I, I think the big thing that everybody's overlooking, and this is a really big thing, like this isn't this isn't a little thing, and and it happened, and we saw it, but we're really kind of just in this hangover period. But number one is that zero interest rate policy created a massive bubble in bonds, and I think it's okay to acknowledge it. I mean, obviously we see it, and we see it in the performance of bonds today. But what we saw was absolutely an anomaly, something that you don't normally see. You don't normally see $18 trillion in negative yielding bonds globally. That's odd. And it's funny, I recall having conversations with one of my former co-PMs and, and we were talking about the bond market and and he was really bullish on bonds, more bullish than I would have expected. And one of the reasons is that he, he said there was no bond mania. You know, like there was on the stock side years ago, you know, whether it's the tech bubble or, you know, a, a bunch of different bubbles that we've seen on the stock side. And he said, we've never really seen that on the bond side recently. And I, I think back to that thought because I didn't think it. <laughs> and it was pretty incredible that he thought it. And and we had it. So we had this bond mania. We had this bond bubble. And so that's what I think is the big picture thing that we are seeing today that has burst. You know, the Fed liquidity created a rising tide It lifted every ship, it lifted stocks, it lifted bonds, it lifted non-profitable growth companies. And now that tide has gone out. So so I know we a lot of us are surprised at the magnitude of the decline in the bond market in terms of percentage performance. Even myself, we, we've been short duration for a while to kind of hide out good balance sheets to hide out. But even our bonds are down too, because they were, they're all down. And... Again, I think it makes sense in hindsight, understanding that the correlation was was together on the way up, high on the way up, and and it's it's high on the way down now. Um, you know, and and the second point I will say is that this environment is very different because it is an inflationary environment. We haven't had one in decades, and so either <laughs> the people who've lived through the last one are not around anymore, or there are people like our age who just haven't experienced it yet. But if you do go back and look at a chart of correlations, you will see going back decades that over inflationary periods, bonds have not hedged stocks as they have over the last 10, 20, 30 years. So I think that's another important distinction. So so the two big points is I think number one, again, we were in a major bond bubble and that's over. And number two, inflationary periods. In inflationary periods, the correlations between stocks and bonds act a little differently than we normally expect. What about earnings? I mean, we've we've seen um, sort of mediocre earnings. Uh, you know, it depends on what at what level you look at the S and P reporting. Uh, you know, good, bad, or you know, indifferent. Yeah. What What about that? What's under the surface there? Yeah. So I think the the biggest takeaway. So we look at hundreds of companies' earnings, whether whether we own this the company or not we think we can glean some type of information off of just about everybody's earnings whether it's in the commentary or the numbers themselves and so we do look at hundreds of companies we look not only at the results but at the reactions and so 
every quarter is different, but I will say over the past year or two, the big takeaway is that the energy sector in particular is doing a lot of the heavy lifting from both a top line and a bottom line growth standpoint. And so if you exclude energy today, uh, we've had our second straight quarter of down four to 5% in EPS growth and earnings growth. And so that to us, that's a very important distinction to understand that and to just know that everything's not bright and rosy, even though it hasn't been from a stock performance standpoint this year. Again, it's, you know, it's really been one sector that's kind of dominated from a growth standpoint. Outside of that, yes, there are pockets of strength. Areas that you may not even expect, you know, airlines and travel have been particularly strong relative to other segments of discretionary. Luxury companies have done a lot better than, than the lower end in terms of discretionary. Uh, healthcare, which is an area where you really wouldn't think it could do that poorly, is doing terrible. Outside of pharma, pharma is holding up well. Healthcare service companies, companies that sell into healthcare are having a horrible time with labor shortages and inflation. And we are seeing stocks down 30, 40, 50% on post earnings. Very different. Absolutely very different times in that regard. So it's different sector by sector, company by company. Overall, we are seeing a broad deceleration. COVID spike in sales and earnings is that part's over. And so we are seeing, you know, tougher year over year comps and things like that. Uh, but it really is. And I hate, it's funny when, when, when we listen to interviews and I hate when people say it, but this really is a stock in a bond pickers market. I think if you are skilled at financial ratio analysis, if you understand uh, management strategy and the way to combine both the subjective analysis versus the object versus the, and including the objective analysis in the numbers, I think they're really is a lot of value to add here today versus versus in years past when everything was just going up broadly. So is there any anywhere in particular or any sort of element that you're looking for in, uh, as you look across the portfolio and wh where do you see any opportunities? Yep, absolutely. So so I think in broad terms, because we don't speak about specific companies, but, but in broad terms, you can definitely hide. Inv bond investors can definitely hide in great balance sheets. There are, so, so the market do, doesn't really differentiate on the downside, just like sometimes on the upside, it doesn't. But you can find some really, really great balance sheets, even in high yield, maybe issued by smaller companies and companies that have more cash than debt on the balance sheet. That's a great place to hide. Those companies will not have to refinance, which is a huge benefit in a rising rate environment. So, you know, just conversely speaking, if you think about where we could get in trouble or where the downside might be, it's going to be, default rates will go up. I don't know where they are going to go, but they're going to go higher than zero, which is they've basically been close to zero over the last few years. They're going to go higher than that. Do they go to 5%? Do they go to 10%? I'm not sure. But what we've seen or what I I think we will see is that we, we hear a lot about zombie companies and credit. I think the refinance game, the easy refinance game where these companies have stayed alive purely because they could refinance at lower rates, that's over for now. We have a 4 to 5% hurdle rate, and that's different than at any point over a very long period of time. And so I think that game's over. So unless you have sustainable earnings and a good balance sheet to support your credit or your bond, you're going to be in trouble. And there will be defaults. And we already are starting to see some cracks in the, in the credit on the credit side. Uh, on the stock side, Yes, I think, again, if you focus on good margins, good sustainable margins, and there's companies that are out there, uh, good return on capital, good balance sheets, 
those are all pockets. And I will say, you know, so our three biggest winners were all small caps over this past reporting period. And, you know, significant increases after earnings, unexpected, because the valuations in small caps versus large caps had been so, so low relative to history. There there are additional pockets of value, I believe, in in small cap stocks, especially of companies that have good balance sheets. So cash is king. <laughs> people say it, and 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 it's funny. I, you know, obviously, lots of people in in the market have said it. But yes, I think cash on the balance sheet. I would just, you know, make that little. So, so at normally, yes, I love cash because of the flexibility that it gives us. But right now, we are getting paid. We have a very low cash level, and because uh, I would just add that little stipulation, cash on the balance sheets is absolutely king. And now you can get four and five and six and seven percent yields uh, for companies that have more cash than debt that don't have to access the capital markets. And um, and yeah, it's nice to get, it's nice it's so refreshing to finally get paid again where we were slugging it out for so long with you know anemic yields. And um, and and I'm quite frankly thrilled that that period is over now. So what do you see then, George, as the downside from here? Yep. I, I think ultimately, I don't know in terms of, of big picture levels. So I think if you think about the way the market's trading, the dollar has had a huge impact both on U.S. and international companies. And, you know, you can absolutely see the dollar swing back down and then that could that could drive, honestly, a, a nice little rise in, in stocks. Yeah, absolutely. That, that So I think more in terms of potential outcomes versus anything else. I think there will be some downside in credit. There will be some downside in companies that, again, do not have sustainable margins, do not have a good business model that maybe came to market over the last few years with the, the hype that we've seen across the board in capital markets. I think, I think there will be downside there. So it will be a much more mixed environment, so to speak. And um, you never know. Obviously, we have some pretty major headwinds ahead of us that we need to get through. I mean, there certainly is an outright hot war in, you know, in the Ukraine with Russia and we have economic wars starting up all over the place, not just between the U.S. and China now or the U.S. and Russia now, but you're even starting to hear some frustration out of the European companies, which were traditional allies, obviously, and they are getting a little frustrated as well. So I do think in terms of, so, so what I would say is that I never... I never try to tie ourselves to a specific outcome, whether the market will be up or down or not. I try to think of potential outcomes and where the risk might be. And where the risk might be is that, again, each country is in their own trouble, whether it was the UK with their pensions or whether it's Germany with natural gas and, and, and having enough fuel for the winter. Those types of scenarios and situations historically can lead to volatility. And so that's something I'm definitely keeping a very keen eye on, how those dire situations or desperate situations will hopefully hopefully resolve themselves. But if they don't, it could create peer, more more periods of volatility than we've had in a long time, sure. Well, George, we're, we're coming to the end here. So we've got our, our kind of two-point question at the end. So what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? This is my favorite part of the show. I, I love it. I've listened, listened to so many of these podcasts. You've had some incredible guests over time, and this is absolutely my favorite part of the show, and I think it adds so much value for the listener. So 
my first job in the industry. So I came from way outside of the industry. I grew up doing concrete work in, in my family's business. And I went to Drexel University and they had a co-op program. And my first job in the industry was working on the floor of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange for a firm called Susquehanna, which is an absolutely outstanding global trading firm. Uh, at the time, they were much smaller, of course, back in 1998. But um, but yeah, they've grown and, and wow, they really did things the right way. So that job opened my eyes to so many different things, not just finance. I fell in love with the financial markets. I fell in love with the trading component, even though it's not a huge part of my job today, but just understanding markets. Un and it really gave me a great appreciation and understanding for behavior in markets and how they can impact your decision making. And so again, just being in an open pit on the floor of an exchange is a is a an eye-opening experience. You learn so much about how markets move, why markets move, um, and and about behavior. And it really was a foundational lesson for me that really helped me build upon over time my career and the direction of my career. And I found myself to be you you find out a lot just as much about yourself as you do about the markets and you find out what kind of investor you want to be and what kind of job you'd want to have in the industry. And so th those early positions are really important for, for, for people and they leave a mark the, the, the lessons that I've learned will carry with me forever. And, um, and again, a lot of the future journey and exploration really came from that first job and I'm so grateful for it. So what would I tell myself? I, I think the biggest takeaway, I think, is enjoy the journey in the moment. I think we are we work so hard, as you know, Mike, and you work hard every day, and time just goes. And especially in this business, the years just fly by. And I think just enjoying the journey in the moment is really important. I try to do that more. Actually, today's my birthday. I'm 48 today. And you think back, you know, to the to the you know coming into the industry as as a young person. And gosh, it just goes by so fast. So just enjoy the journey in the moment, every moment, even the bad ones, especially the bad ones. You know, just understand the bad times don't last. The good times may not last either all the time, but just enjoy all the moments. And then if I had to give myself a piece of advice, it's don't ever speak, email, or communicate in anger. I've, I've done that in the past. It's absolutely a, a terrible thing to do. Uh, I just think we all need to give ourselves time to take a step back think about what you want to say, how the message will be received, and be sensitive to who you're speaking to and, and, and again, how that message is received. And the great quote from Maya Angelou, of course, is, I've learned that people will forget what you've said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And that is absolutely true. And I know there's you know, some things that I've said in anger where people will never, ever forget that, that I said them that way. So I think I am a lot more sensitive to again, how messages are delivered today, then maybe I would deliver them as a younger person. Well, uh, hopefully, George, our listeners are feeling a little smarter now than they were <laughs> at the beginning of our show today. Thanks so much for coming on and, and, and happy birthday. It, it's funny, actually, my birthday was three days ago, same year of birth. So there we go. Happy birthday to us. That's awesome. Happy birthday, Mike. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. You do a great job. Thank you. I've been speaking today with George Cipollone, Portfolio Manager at Penn Mutual Asset Management. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.